This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. No one can help or hurt a child like a parent can. Don't believe me? Well, try finding a memoir that isn't an extended meditation on the author's parents. And if you've read the memoirs I have, you don't want your children to grow up and write one. The story of growing up with two parents who loved you and loved the Lord doesn't make good drama, but it can help set you up for a lifetime of faithfully serving God and neighbors. Matt Chandler aims to help parents toward this goal in his new book, Family Discipleship, Leading Your Home Through Time, Moments, and Milestones, co-authored with Adam Griffin and published by Crossway. A Chandler lead pastor of teaching at the Village Church in Dallas, Texas, has three children with his wife, Lauren. I'm thankful they've extended this glimpse into their home to learn what family discipleship can look like. Because what better time than a global pandemic lockdown to turn our attention toward this call to family discipleship? If you don't think you have time now to make this a priority, then it's time for new priorities. Uh, This is what Chandler and Griffin write in their book. They say this, your child is not only your progeny, he or she is your protege. Everything you have learned from and about following Christ is to be passed on to your children to the best of your ability. And rest assured, they are watching you closely. Uh, Matt Chandler joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss moments and milestones, models and mishaps in family discipleship. Once again, Matt, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. I'm glad to be here. It's been a long time, Colin. I've uh, been looking forward to this conversation for some time. I'm about to send off my uh, my firstborn child to kindergarten, Lord okay. willing, here. The schools will open up. And so your, your book is especially timely for us. One of the things you write is that a well-behaved child is not the same thing as a discipled child. As parents, how do you tell the difference? Yeah, I mean, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to do some work to tell the difference, and and I mean probably more work on yourself uh, as much as work to to navigate kind of your children's mind and heart, especially if you have a child that that wants to please you, wants to obey you. You know, I don't know how much people have read about kind of firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, those kinds of dynamics, but um, you you might have a child that wants to please you more than anything else. It's almost the child's idol. That's and, my firstborn. Well, there you go. So that's that's yeah. a lot of people's firstborn. Uh, it's not my firstborn. <laughs> a lot of people's firstborn. And so you need to be really careful with a child whose only goal in life is to please you. Because then what they're going to do is say what you want them to say and do what you want them to do. And it becomes very easy in that moment to become real passive about searching what's really going on underneath the surface. Is there a doubt that if they didn't measure up, that that your love would remain steadfast. So so you have to do now the kid that's naturally bent the opposite direction. And my second. There you go. Uh, 
Yeah, maybe all of mine. Uh, maybe all <laughs> of so I. But that that child that that wants to push the boundaries doesn't understand the rules. Sure, wants to please you. It's one of their top six or seven priorities, but but not certainly not the driving personality. That that child's almost easier in some ways in in regards to knowing whether or not we're we're discipling or rather we're just um, doing behavioral modification. And and there have been several books written on this about kind of the the good girl mentality or the golden child, the kid that just always behaves perfectly and therefore the the parent gets more passive with that child. But as Christian parents, we need to make sure that that our children aren't without us knowing taking on kind of a moralistic deism uh, around their relationship with Christ because they are going to fall short. They, they're falling short all the time with the Lord. They, they're just unaware that they're doing it, mainly because how we parent is far more rules-based than, than it is relationship-based oftentimes. And I think the law is important. Like without the law, kids will burn down the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> but we also need to make sure they they understand that that when a law is broken, there's grace and be the kind of parent that doesn't freak out when when they don't look like they're going the way we want them to go or doing the things that we want them to do. Sure, there can be repercussions. There can be discipline. In fact, I would encourage that strongly. Uh, but there has to be this underlying current of grace for the child because we are projecting to our kids how to think rightly about the Lord. And they're not picking up on that just by the information we're giving them. They're picking up on that in how we react to their failures, how we react to their wins, how we, you know, whether we get cold and distant, whether we get angry and blow up, all of those things are dynamics that a kid's absorbing. It's not ideal, but they, they project, if we're not careful, they project our weaknesses onto God. Yeah. The whole book on family discipleship is is a whole vision for how how and why your family can start to do this. But the reason you're writing a book is because so many families don't ever catch that vision. What's the biggest challenge you typically see that inhibits parents from being able to follow through on this? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the issue is parents don't think they can. They don't think they're equipped. They don't think they have the answers. They don't. I think the number one hurdle isn't even a lack of vision. It's the parents' belief that they can't offer spiritual food to their child, that they don't know enough. And I found this to be true even of church members who are very involved, very active. And I think maybe the models of church that we do help this. Because what do we want? We've got big children's ministries and big student ministries. And, you know, it's easy for a parent to punt that to the church because they feel like they don't have what it takes to to be the primary discipler. Uh, The problem with that is they are regardless. Yeah, it's not an option that I I tell people all the time, especially when I'm working on catechesis. Sometimes somebody will react really negatively and say, why would I want to ever catechize my child? And I'll say, I mean, it's not an option. You can do it or everybody else can do it for you. You can just pick one. I think you probably would prefer to do that yourself in that case. Um, I live in a town that very much values conformity. Yeah. Um, I think a lot about this than raising my own children to stand up and to stand out for Jesus. Uh, You and Adam write this in the book. If God graciously saves your child, Many in the culture will be repulsed by your child. 
some nice warm and fuzzy uh, parenting advice and counsel right there, Matt. That's what we've come to expect from you. I mean, you're telling us to raise children who will be hated. And that definitely seems to go against most parenting advice that I hear today. Uh, What would you say you've seen as a pastor, as a parent, is the typical put up or shut up moment for parents when it comes to following this advice? Yeah, I, I think especially it, it it happens around in 2020, it, it happens early and it happens around questions of sexuality. And because people, what I have found is that a lot of people want their kids to be good kids. They don't want them doing drugs. They don't want them sleeping around. They, But they also want them to be loved and liked and they want them to be sports stars and they want them to be, they, they don't want there to be any real, they don't want them to be weird. Maybe that's the best word. Yeah. They yeah. don't want their kids to be weird. They don't, gosh, I found even most adult Christians don't want to be weird. Yeah. Christians. They want to be cool Christians. And I, I've argued for over a decade that the cooler you want to be, uh, I think the less power you'll walk in um, as an evangelizing Bible believing Orthodox Christian. Yeah. So, so questions of sexuality, just in terms of like them lining up, like having the right positions or them certain behaviors, what, what exactly, how does it usually come up? Paint the scenario a little bit. Yeah. A scenario, the majority of the time will be depending on your context, right? This is going to play out a little bit different in the South than it would maybe the Northeast or Northwest or West Coast. Or, But if I think through how it plays out in our area, where once you hit that sex ed talk that in our area is still very tame compared to what it is in other parts of the U S or maybe later. Yeah. Or yeah. So in that moment, when you've been raised a certain way, your whole life, the kid will, for the first time feel like an outsider. And so in that moment the the kid has to, to wrestle with, okay, here's what I'm hearing about sex, sexuality, gender, what it is, what it's not at school and with my friends and on social media and on shows that are on TV and on. And yet this is what I'm hearing at church. And this is what I'm hearing from my parents. If you've got a good relationship with mom and dad, that almost always brings up the question with mom and dad, because most concerned Christian parents want to have a conversation with their kids after that breaks out. And, and if the mom and dad are unwilling to encourage the kid towards courage, right? That's what the word encourage means, to pour courage into. If they're not willing to pour courage into and, and remind the kid, yeah, we are, we are a part of a different kingdom. We do, but we do stand in prophetic contrast, loving prophetic contrast to the world that we live in. And this is part of our ethic that makes us different than the world. And if the parent won't in that moment go, my kid's going to be weird because he loves Jesus, then, then, man, the, the kid is going to be picking up on the fears of the parents to not be weird. And now you've got another generation that's trying not to be weird. Yeah. I sense that this is probably something that's a little bit more taken for granted in a, you know San Francisco or something like that. But you and I are both in predominantly su- in Southern context, even in urban context, but still where you're exactly right. A lot of the Christian adults and parents are not expecting themselves to stand out. And so it's not something they think about preparing uh, their kids for. And then especially you get into white middle-class, upper middle-class communities, such a heavy emphasis on conformity there. It's just like, well, wait a minute, why would we, why would we stand out? And, And I would confess my own naivety about how powerful 
yeah. uh, the culture would pull on my children and how odd uh, it would seem to them. Uh, I mean, I just did not see that. You know, I've got a soon to be senior in high school. I've got a guy. Uh, my son's going into his freshman year. My my youngest is going into her sixth grade year. And I I, I don't feel like the fundamentalist dad from Footloose. <laughs> I don't. I don't feel that way. We don't live that way. But but man, if they don't see me that way sometimes because of the world that they live in, like where I think I'm being so relaxed in some ways they can look at the landscape of their friends and their friends' parents, and I can look like a tyrant. And so I think I was a bit naive, especially mm-hmm. with my two oldest ones, of just how powerful the culture pulls on them. Just how even, even the, there's not a free-for-all for media in my home, and, and yet even what they have absorbed from, yeah. school, from their culture, it, it is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that like to them on many occasions, I am the dad in Footloose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that means you're doing your job. Uh, Now you've also had an opportunity to be able to walk with some, some parents in your congregation and others whose, whose kids have, have grown your kids again, still at home with you. But as you look at some of those Christian families on the other side of this, do you find through family discipleship, there's any one activity or quality of parenting that you most often observe that tends to correspond with those children growing up in a Christian home and still walking with Christ as adults. Yeah, there, there were two things. One was actually a, a point of data that, that we didn't come up with, but that had come up out, out of a Fuller's research data where parents who attended church with their children, like the, the children, whether they be teenagers or whether they be sixth, seventh, eighth, if they sat together in church and, and then that's what they talked about on the way home. It was it was it was unbelievable. The data around what happened if you just went to church together, not drove there together, but you actually sat together as hmm. a church. So so that would be easily number one. The the ancillary, the second one would be more ancillary just from people I know here. If you are quasi stable as a parent, then then the the long game tends to play out well. And what I mean by that is when your kid accidentally cusses or slips a cuss word and you know in your mind that probably means they're doing much more than that when they're not in your space and you freak out about that and jam a bar of soap down their mouth and take away all their devices and ground them for their friends for two years like that bad things happen when that's our reaction. Overreactions you're talking yeah, about. Overreaction, like like um, crazy or frenetic reactions. If you're if you're unable, and and if you, w- what I don't want to do is have any parent freak out here because they're like, oh my gosh, I have freaked out. Like I've that. already done it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and who hasn't done it in the last no. eight months? Right. Yeah. No kidding. But um, there's nowhere to go, and yeah. so <laughs> there you are, wherever you Thanks are. Thanks for reminding us, Matt. But but if you will, what I I think some other things we saw that is parents who will own that. And they'll circle back around and say, hey, that wasn't about you. That was about me. Will you please forgive me? That that was my reaction to that was not okay. Daddy needs the Lord, just like he's telling you, you need the Lord. And right there, that was not pleasing to the Lord and certainly was a sin against you. Will you please forgive me? That doesn't excuse their behavior, but it owns our sinful behavior in a way that models to the child that, that forgiveness is available to those who seek it. Um, and so the two things I would say would be one, um, going to church together was huge. 
So, so no age segregation then at least well, at, yeah. at any age or just older children. The, the data that we looked at was kind of middle school up. Got it. Okay. Yep. So middle school up, if you're sitting together as a family that, that had long-term impact. It, like I was startled by that. Certainly not the model most churches operate by where your middle school and high school have their own fun, high energy thing. And parents go to a big church, or at least I think they still call it that. <laughs> yeah. There was um, a study that came out earlier this year, researcher Lyman Stone for the American Enterprise Institute talking about the decline of religiosity. One of the things he found was an 85 to 100% correlation between somebody who grew up in a Christian home and walked as an adult with evidence of four religious activities per week with the, with the parents and the kids. Yeah. Now, some people might hear that and say that's a ton, maybe so. Or I think maybe it wasn't even just parents and kids. It was actually just four religious activities or something like that. Then you basically say, okay, you got a youth group, you got a church. Okay. But it seems like basically family worship would have been in many cases that second or third thing. I don't think two weeks, two times a week would be too much for most uh, uh, parents in that case. But I think all he was trying to illustrate is that if your faith starts with church and extends with in kind of it's, it's seriously involved with church, and it also is at home. It's not only at church. The statistics are pretty overwhelming. Yeah. It's not as complicated as yeah. people might want, want to make it out to be. And another thing he found that was pretty scary is that we talk a lot about how kids fall away in college because of their atheist professors or something like that or debauchery. He says, actually, almost all of the faith decline is in high school. That's true. While they're still at your home. Yeah. And now I've heard you say, I don't think I picked that up on this in this book, but you more than anybody else has taught me about or warned me about the role of activities in regular church going. Yeah. You still see the same problems when it comes to that? Yeah, I, I, I do. I think I do. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, I tell people all the time, if you think your kids are going to grow up and think church is important and have no evidence of having seen that in their lives growing up, yeah. whatever you might profess, it doesn't add up yeah. to them. So there's a knowing and a knowing, right? And so yeah. if you're just trying to get content into them. That That's a lot different than the modeling, I think, required for them to get a sense of what it really means to belong to Jesus. Right. Well, one of the things you all say in the book is that family discipleship needs to be normal and simple. Uh, let's dive down a little bit more on this. Give one normal, simple thing a parent could do right now that would make the biggest difference. And I'll, I'll just start give my give my own thoughts here. Again, my kids are younger, and this is something that works well for us. But grab a hymn book, open it up, sing together every night. That, that's yeah. that's just one simple thing that I'm not talking about any evidence of you know them being 20 or 30 or 40 or something like that. I'm just saying it's one thing that really sets a major tone in our house, what would you recommend? Yeah. So a, a, a game that we play, or it started as a game when they were little, probably when they were y- your kids' ages. And then now we still do it. And, and they're in high school is at dinner, we play a game called Loha. And so it was, what was the lowest moment of your day? And and what was the best part of your day? So this isn't a yes, no question. So they, they have to give. And so they have to answer. Even when they try to go around it with a, well, I didn't really have a low today. <laughs> I can go, well, then what was your least favorite thing? That today? <laughs> and and then that that opens up a kind of dialogue about their hearts, about what's going on, 
because a lot of times we'll follow up that, well, why was that the best part of your day? Or why did that bother you so much? And then before you know it, it can end up in us praying over one another or encouraging one another. And sometimes that that person is Lauren or me being prayed for. Um, And so that's just a normal, like the kids will bring it up if I forget. Are we going to play Aloha? Yeah, it just becomes part of the expectation. Yeah, it's what for we the family, what we do at dinner. Normal and simple. Yep. Yeah, I loved loved that there. Another phrasing I thought was especially helpful in the book. You talk about godly role models as being reliable and relatable. I'm wondering, with your generation of parents, do you see anything in particular that your parents are or that that your peers are trying to do that is offering a good and healthy correction? to what perhaps a previous generation or generations of parents had done. Yeah. I think the jury's out <laughs> overcorrected in some ways. Uh, if I think about what I see versus in, in my peers, as opposed to what I saw growing up, I, I think that this generation of parents is a bit more emotionally available, Yeah, a bit more vulnerable about their struggles. Like I, I can't, I can't remember a time that my mom or dad showed any kind of real weakness or they just got on with it, man. And, and, and I mean, that had repercussions of its own, right. But there was no um, needing of help. There was never any um, admission of weakness. There was never seeking of forgiveness there. You know, if they knew they, they blew it, then man, people do that in life, get over it, move on. You know, whereas we tend to be more emotionally attuned um, and vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I have to think also dads on the, on the whole are much more involved. Oh, I think so. Just much, much more hands-on. I love the, the comedian Jim Gaffigan says, I have more pictures of my children than times my father ever looked at me. <laughs> like that, that, pretty- right? that emotional attunement where our dad, yeah. that generation, they just didn't know how to do it. Yeah. Um, Certainly not been modeled for many of their parents um, there as well. Um, You say that regular family discipleship times, we're not talking here about the concept, but the specific practice, they are a hill to die on. They should be sacred and mandatory. I agree with you on that. And I'm I'm convinced basically that it's less important what you do in terms of content than simply that you do it consistently. How do you then respond to a parent, though, who says, ah, we just prefer a more fluid, unscheduled approach to things? Yeah, I think if a parent is telling me they prefer the more fluid, you know, basically, do we have, are we going to do it tonight? Are we going to do it tomorrow night? I'm, I'm wondering, in all honesty, how long that's actually gone on and with what kind of consistency that actually happens. My experience is anything in life, not, not just this, but anything in life that's not scheduled and prioritized happens like an adrenaline burst and not like the kind of rhythm that's truly formational. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's something that at least I've become much more attuned to in the last number of years is just the role of ritual, the role of habit in life transformation. And that's why I'm saying, I I don't think necessarily it's always that you have to have all the right content. Of course you have content and consistency then you've got a winning picture right there. But, but if nothing else, the consistency wins out. I was talking about 
aimed toward pastors, elders here specifically, um, and you guys address this passage, 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. Matt, when you're evaluating a pastor or elder, how do you judge whether he manages his household well, according to that requirement for a church leader? Yeah, so there's I've, I've seen a, a couple of different ways to approach this. The first is to look at the kid and see where the kid is and how the kid lives and and whether the kid loves Jesus and whether the I I don't that I don't think that's a fair way to look at it. I don't okay. certainly in my own soteriology, yeah. uh, not comfortable with looking at it that way. Yeah. Um, what I'm looking for is a father and husband that has ordered his home well. Uh, who has sought with his life, with his mouth, with his time um, to create an environment that points to Jesus, that nurtures hearts and minds uh, to love and, and cherish Jesus. And then, you know, all of that, my soteriology is all of that is just kindling around a heart. Only the spirit of God can ignite it. And, and so if the spirit has not ignited that kindling, then then I'm, I don't think that that man is disqualified then as a pastor or an elder. Uh, I think he should be lamented with and prayed with, um, not punished. But then I know there are others that actually interpret that passage the exact opposite way, that if the kid isn't following after Jesus and in love with Jesus and is morally upright, then this man has obviously done something wrong, which meant I'm so uncomfortable with that interpretation of that passage, find it inconsistent with the rest of scripture. One of the scary things is that, um, I mean, I, I, I can look at examples of our friends. I can look at the Ortlands. I can look at the Kellers. And you can see not just one child walking with the Lord, but many children walking with the Lord. And not just walking with the Lord, but serving in ministry. Yeah. And, um, and then I, but I've always been cautioned by the Kellers, by the Ortlands, by anybody else to not make assumptions yeah. about that because we all have friends and, and yeah. peers in ministry where they, the complete opposite is yeah. the case. And it isn't necessarily because of the quality of the parenting, at least in any possible way to be able to discern. I mean, I think one thing that media love a story about a child falling away, especially yeah. if that child's parents are, are famous and especially if they're in ministry and, even though I see a lot of bad news, um, I'm, I'm, which I'm often numb to, this those stories always just seem to hit me hard. They they seem to relate. Yeah. Of like, uh, I just I just immediately begin to think of what how I would feel. I look at my young children, and then I just think, imagine a moment where they would just hate me that yeah. much and hate they hate hate Jesus. I mean that that's what it comes right down to. Um, even though the outcomes belong to God, do you still think there is anything that we can discern about how we can or should behave in faith as parents in light of, light of how these things go? Yeah. I, so, and that's partly why I wrote, we, we wrote the book is right. to kind of create this. Uh, did, did this man spend time? Did, did he mark milestones? Did he take advantage of moments? Did he set a um, path towards maturity for his child? Did he discipline when the, the child rebelled to a point that it would be godly but not domineering? Did he, right? So, so even this framework for me would be if I'm assessing an elder candidate and, and 
they have children in the home or their children uh, are um, at, at an age where maybe they're in a season of rebellion or see that this is where I want to press. Um, but man, th- these things are nothing will make us feel more primal than, than our kids. Yeah. I've oftentimes said, you, you know, I, I've got the skin of a rhinoceros, but there are four people on earth yeah. who can undo me yeah. in, in a moment. And that's my kids and my wife. Yeah. Uh, they could cut me in ways that nobody else can. Yeah. And, uh, and I would know like some of the things that my kids have done historically, they, and I know it ain't personal, um, but, but still it hurts. And so I, I'm looking for those kinds of husbands and fathers that were intentional uh, with their children. But I, but I don't feel like a man should ever be punished whose kids aren't following the Lord in a given moment. Plus parenting's the long game, isn't it? Yeah, it's a long game. Yeah. I have great friends who deeply love Jesus. They evangelize. I mean, there's every time we do celebration service, they're baptizing somebody else who had <laughs> a, a child that for the longest time just seemed to hate the Lord out of no, like, it just didn't make any sense. They had other kids that loved the Lord, but they just had this one that was just wanted nothing to do. And then now that she's like 28, yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, man, she's joined a church and she's starting to grow again. And and she's so, you know, there, there are dynamics at play here that I don't think we understand. Yeah. So, so I'm trying to encourage parents. One, you can do this. Two, be intentional. Three, it's not as hard as you think it is. Yeah. Um, and then four, let me come alongside you and help in any way I can. Right. Well, I think um, if we can look at the negative and we, we can look at see people in therapy and talking about their parents and talking about these wounds and things like that. That's the negative side. But if we can flip that around, even if your child runs far away, fast and far away from the Lord, the formation of being in that home is so powerful. I agree. If it's powerful enough to be used by Satan for evil, then it's powerful enough to be used by God to be able to bring revival and renewal of yeah. faith to a, to a grown child. There's, I mean, I, I just, I think we should be encouraged by that. And it's one reason why, even though I've shifted religious traditions, I've, I've left behind some of the things that I grew up with. I, those are still in some ways, the default wiring yeah. for me in some, in some really good ways, including the music, which is why I use this hymn book. That's from the Methodist church that I'd grown up in. And so I think there's a, there's a hopeful, hopeful opportunity there. Um, just a, a couple, one last question and then sort of a bonus here. But um, let's say, Matt, your children are interviewed. Just to prepare for that one. Let's say your children are interviewed someday about what it was like to grow up in Matt Chandler's home. What do you hope they say? Yeah, I, I would hope that they would say that we laughed a lot and there was a lot of joy in our home, uh, that they watched people um, – be set free from sin and death at our dining room table and in our living rooms and on the back patios and that our um, house was filled with um, uh, a lot of joy in Jesus and um, that, that my dad seemed to be tuned into uh, where my heart was at any given moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a hopeful vision that I think uh, that I certainly would share as well for my own children. I've been talking with Matt Chandler, co-author with Adam Griffin of Family Discipleship, Leading Your Home Through Time, Moments, and Milestones, published by Crossway. Last bonus question here, Matt. We um, love on Gospel Bound just to talk about books, talk with authors. And so we like to ask authors, what's the best book you recently read, Matt? Well, this is a while. I mean, I just finished this today, but uh, Robert Eigner's 
book, The Ride of a Lifetime. He was Disney CEO, kind of brought it back from the brink, did all the mergers with Pixar and Fox, and, and it became kind of one of two of the communication empires in the world right now. And so I was just fascinated by that book. So I might even listen to it again. <laughs> All right. Very good. Again, Matt, uh, it's always good talking with you and especially on a, on a topic like this that's so, so near and dear to your heart. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes, subscribe to my newsletter, and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.